I'm a firm believer that if you lift from the bottom, the rest of society rises. And it just so happened that the people that's placed at the bottom are incarcerated, right? So where I want, want people to take this is to really start humanizing people and put names, faces, stories to the people that's incarcerated so we can change the outlook of what the penal system looked like, what the legal system looked like, right? I think as someone that's been system impacted, not only like in the foster care system, education system, having negative experiences in both, and then ultimately the, the penal system have negative experience there. Now I'm in a position where not only do I have the skill set to redesign systems, to refactor systems, but now I'm given the platform to be able to speak, right? So you shifting from being system impacted to impacting systems. And that's where I really want everything to start shifting towards. And I think at the last mile, we're taking lead on that. No one else is doing this, right? Like what we're doing is, is revolutionary. And I love that. It's all about disruption. And the thing about technology that I always say, is like, you know, all my life in school, I got punished for being disruptive, right? And here it is a whole industry that disruption is, is reframed as innovation and it's celebrated. And that's exactly what we're doing. I want to continue to disrupt so that we can make the changes that needs to happen. Welcome to the Data Bench Podcast, a library of discussions with technologists and business leaders, focusing on the human relationship with technology. Three, two, one, deploy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. I hope you're finding this discussion in a time of peace and health as you move across your day, if even for a few moments. This month, February 2021, is an officially designated time and space for Black Americans as we honor and celebrate Black History Month. And the focus of this month's discussions on this podcast are centered around elevating the voices of the Black community in an effort to contribute to lasting impact. And today's discussion is an immensely important dialogue for us to ingest, reflect upon, and give energy to. One very important lesson I took away from the episode we will share together today is that making significant contributions to the lives of others, it doesn't have to come in the form of volunteering time or donating money or many of the other activities that create barriers for us to take action and make a difference. Most importantly, if we can just reframe our position on the narrative we have created about others and see them as human beings who have common fears, challenges, and deficits, if we can build an understanding of the human experience, this is one of the greatest gifts we can give to each other. And acknowledging that experience in others is one of the greatest ways we can create perpetual impact. And now for today's discussion. Today's discussion is a LinkedIn live recording of the Data Binge podcast featuring Chris Redlitz and Jason Jones of The Last Mile, a nonprofit breaking the mass incarceration cycle by combating recidivism through in-person education and post-release mentorship focused on coding and software engineering. For those pondering what this means, this word recidivism, it is the tendency for a convicted criminal to re-offend. The last miles return citizen alumni, folks that are graduating from the program, maintain a 0% recidivism. Chris Redlist is a general partner of Transmedia Capital, one of the best performing micro funds in Silicon Valley, and co-founder of The Last Mile. Through The Last Mile, Chris, along with his wife and co-founder Beverly Parenti, 
launched the first ever full stack coding program inside U.S. prisons. Previously, Chris co-founded Kick Labs, which Forbes ranked as a top technology accelerator and incubated Wish, AngelList, and other influential companies. Chris received AdAge's prestigious I-20 award for his contributions to the development of interactive marketing and advertising. And earlier in his career, Chris was part of Reebok's explosive growth, where he held positions in sales all the way to marketing and also owned one of the first specialty sports retail chains in Southern California. Jason Jones is a full-time disruptor, activist, educator, and software engineer. Jason is the remote instructor manager for The Last Mile and leads a team of educators that remotes into classrooms across the U.S. to deliver virtual lessons in computer coding. On September 25th, 2018, Jason was released after 13 and a half years incarcerated, during which time he graduated from The Last Mile's inaugural coding class. Three weeks before his release, Jason became the first person from his cohort to sign a work agreement with a tech company as a software engineer. Jason was also the first justice-involved person to be accepted into the Lightspeed Fellowship with a team from Stanford. And today, he's a participant in the Coke Associate Program. We were so honored throughout the live discussion to have around 250 live participants across the episode, many of whom successful alumni of the Last Mile Program sharing their personal experiences and energy around the nonprofit's mission. And we were also very thankful to have participation and support from members of Blacks at Microsoft, which is Microsoft's oldest employee resource group. Thank you to those that were able to join and be a part of the live discussion. We talked across a broad range of topics in our time together today, from the very problem that the last mile is committed to help solve the systemic impact that incarceration creates within different communities, our communities, and the importance of solving the challenges facing the formerly incarcerated and system-impacted individuals in our country. If you'd like to find out more about The Last Mile or you are looking for ways to contribute, you can navigate to thelastmile.org forward slash, or you can send an email to info at thelastmile.org. Thank you for listening and for being a part of this very important conversation. Now I bring you Chris Redlitz and Jason Jones. Okay, here we are. We are live. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode, this live production of the Data Binge podcast. I'm your host, Derek Russell. If this is your first time tuning in, the Data Binge podcast is a series of discussions, a library of discussions focused on the human experience, the human relationship with technology. We have just such an amazing guest profile and discussion ready for you today. Before we get started, I'd like to introduce Chris Redlitz, co-founder of The Last Mile, and Jason Jones, remote instruction manager at The Last Mile, and a member of your prestigious alumni group of the program. Gentlemen, how are you feeling today? Great. Really appreciate you having us, Derek. Yeah. I echo that. I'm really honored to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a really long time. So thank you for joining. So gentlemen, for folks that don't understand who or what The Last Mile, what you guys are up to, what you're doing, Chris, can you kind of give some context into this nonprofit and why you started this thing? Sure. We started The Last Mile about 10 years ago. I'm a venture capitalist. I'm located in San Francisco. 
and I was invited into San Quentin, which is about 30 minutes north of the city, to do a talk to a group of men about business and entrepreneurship. And I had never been in a prison before, didn't know anybody in prison, and I was a little apprehensive about going in. And I really wasn't sure if they'd understand what I was talking about. But I agreed to do it one night, and I went in and spoke to a packed room of folks, and they just were peppering me with questions. Literally, some guys had business plans that they handed to me. And it was one of those moments where I did not expect my, you know, my expectation of what I was going to see and hear and experience was totally different. So I left that night and I was really buzzing about it. And I thought, wow, we could do something. So I went home and I told my wife and business partner, Beverly Parenti, we can do something here. And she he thought I was crazy that we're going to do something in prison. But I convinced her to come back in. She met some of the guys. She agreed to join me in this journey. And we started a small program, an entrepreneurship program, just to help a few guys that I met, help them with their business plans. And we went in two nights a week for about a year and a half. And we had our first demo day where we actually had six guys present in San Quentin, the first time there has ever been a demo day inside California prison. And they were just extraordinary. Brought some of my venture friends in. There was an audience of about 300 people. And that's really when we knew something was there, that it really resonated. The guys inside really wanted to do it. So, you know, here we are 10 years later and it's, you know, it's on a rocket ship right now. Thanks for that context, Chris. So Jason, being a remote instruction manager today and working with a lot of the fellows of the program, the students of the program, and being part of that alumni group, can you talk a little bit about the meaning of the last mile and a little bit about your story and why it's important? Definitely. So I spent 13 and a half years incarcerated. And towards the end of my sentence, I got transferred to San Quentin. Um, and during most of the time I was incarcerated, I had a lot, I struggled to program. I got in a lot of trouble. I went to prison young, angry, misguided. And it wasn't until one of my friends, a mentor of mine, Brian Acey, gave me the advice to apply to the last mile. They thought that it would challenge me, whatnot. I went in and did it just out of good faith for my friend. And then I, I go there. And once I got in, it completely challenged everything that I knew, right? It completely challenged my belief systems that I had. It completely challenged my philosophy that I was operating under. It gave me a set of tools that I just was completely oblivious to when it comes to problem solving, when it came to giving me, a, like, amplifying my voice, right? And I think for, not only for myself, but everyone inside, what it actually did was, like, give us a seat at the table, right? It made us seen. It made us visible. It gave us more access and opportunity, not only to the business world, but also to technology. And not just a seat. I think it gave us a seat initially, but with technology, adding the technology component, because it did start off as an entrepreneur program, and then morphed into a technology program where we teach coding, and that's our focus right now. Once we added that component at the last mile, it gave us the ability to actually build our own tables, right? Now we have the skill set to actually get out and the business knowledge to actually launch our own companies. So Jason, you talked, when we spoke earlier, you talked about this idea of giving hope and transparency. And Chris talks a lot about that as well. But while we're next to your story and next to some of the things that you've been through in terms of your experiences and some of the students that you're talking to on a daily basis in real time, where is the issue? Where is the gap? Where is the problem in the hope and transparency with the formerly incarcerated and, and justice impacted as it stands today, do you think? Well, one, I think that for a long time, we didn't control our own narrative. 
not only the incarcerated community, but just communities that lack resources, don't control their own narrative. That's starting to change now. And I, and I really believe The Last Mile is doing a great job of amplifying human potential and helping them control the narrative. I think the second thing is that our lived experience always been seen as a disadvantage, right? Like I grew up in foster care. I grew up in poverty and everything. And that always, always was blanketed with this at-risk label, right? It always was given like these labels that was kind of on the spectrum of dehumanizing. Also, like when I got incarcerated, felon, inmate, all these different labels was attached to me and my experience. So I operated and I believe I internalized those labels in order to just operate in that environment. When once I got introduced to the last mile, it changed. I got adopted new labels, software engineer, educator, learner uh, while I was in the program. Right. And it's a more humanizing aspect. And I operated differently. Right. And I think when you talk about what a problem lies is, is not only controlling the narrative, but also being able to see more, more than what your current condition is. Right. I know Chris talks about it a lot about thinking outside the box. And here it is in a situation where we were literally in a box. Right. And that's kind of like summed up what we thought, what we hoped. You know, our hopes was just it was minimal because it was hard to see down the line, hard to see to the future where technology is all about optimization and scale. Right. So you apply some of these technical principles into your life. It makes a lot more sense. When you're thinking about planning for your future, you want an optimal solution. You want to get there the most efficient way, but you also want to scale it in a way that makes sense. So, Chris, I would love to understand, you know, based upon some of the things that Jason is talking about, which is just a a beautiful way of using technology. And that's why we're centering on this conversation and we're talking about mass incarceration, but we're talking about leveraging the power of scale, leveraging the power of refactorization, leveraging the power of technology. Chris, where was your head at when? you were thinking about this program and you were thinking about creating this vision for hope and transparency that Jason talks about. Well, it's interesting because when we first started, Beverly and I really had to establish trust, not only with corrections, you know, the administration, but also with the men inside. Because they're like, why are these people coming in? What are they doing? What's their motivation? So there was this trust factor as well. And we came back every week and they're like, oh, they're back again. I guess they're serious. But it's also, you know, within the first month, there was a guy that came up to me and it said, you know, I really want to get a job out of this. But if I never do, it's okay because you're treating me like a human being. And that struck me like we're at that baseline, right? And that's, you know, sort of fundamental. We were teaching sort of, you know, how to interact in business, how to do things that we take very much for granted in the world. And this was not necessarily the norm inside. So, you know, those are things that we had to learn, but it was also really important for us to create a a level of transparency. And we told them, and Jason was one of these, and he was a bit resistant about it, like, tell your story, right? You know, tell your story, be real, be authentic, and don't hide anything. But because in prison, you know, trust is not natural, transparency is not natural, being vulnerable is not natural. And we started to publish these in social media, telling their stories. And, you know, we were using Quora at the time. So each, you know, these were all being managed by us. We take written commentary that they write, we type it out, we plug it in. And we started to get responses back from the community. It was amazing. And we printed those responses. We took them inside and like, people are responding. Like, your story is meaningful. People on the outside are going through similar challenges. And I think that really opened it up. So today, you know, when our graduates are working in various technology companies in the Valley, 
it's a complete open book. You know, you can ask anybody about their background, their challenges and whatnot, and they'll be very honest with you. And I think that transparency has really helped us, you know, sort of get through those trepidations about hiring formerly incarcerated, but it wasn't natural to begin with. That's an interesting aspect is this idea of authenticity and transparency with this specific population, just being open about their condition and their past condition. And some of the things that Jason has been sharing about his own story, when you hear that, it almost alleviates the situation from fear. It builds empathy, it builds proximity. So then you could understand the current situation a bit more. One of my favorite stories was from a gal named Takiana Culver out of a prison in Oklahoma. And for folks that don't know much about prison system in Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma, and I think they're aware of this, but they have 3X in prison, 3X the national average women on a national scale, which is, I mean, quite large. And and you guys are running a program there. She was charged with a second degree murder. She just so happened to be in a room with the wrong person, the wrong time, very young. And now she's paying for it with a 20 year sentence, but she is now part of your program. And she may have even graduated at this point, part of your program and hearing that story and taking, I took 10 minutes and watched the YouTube video on it. And it was just, I couldn't help but be pulled to that because it was real. Can you talk a little bit about how you integrate into these different prison systems and how you build this empathy and build these stories with some of these people? Because that's very hard. Yeah, that's a tough prison. It's Mabel Bassett Prison outside of Oklahoma City. It's a rough place. And many of the people are in for drug-related offenses. As you said, per capita, it's the, Oklahoma is the highest state of incarceration for women. So, you know, we have many very dedicated funders. One is Chan Zuckerberg. And they, part of their criminal justice reform mission was to go into Oklahoma and establish our program there because we wanted to address that head on. We have to hit the tornado where it's toughest. And that's really where it is. So Beverly went down there, spoke to corrections. And again, they were like, you know, they were a little apprehensive about the program because it was brand new for them. And we're bringing technology in and we're doing things in prisons that's never been done before, but they were receptive. And we launched that. And when we launched it, we invited Governor Stitt, who was recently elected in Oklahoma. And governor came down, we talked, and he was, it was the first time a sitting governor had come into a prison in Oklahoma in 30 years. He asked me, he said, Chris, what's the problem? And I said, Governor, do you need to look look in your, you know, back in the mirror to yourself and your administration? Like, there's a problem here. A year later, he did more commutations in Oklahoma state than any other state in the country. So he bought in not only to our program, but to the whole idea of criminal justice reform. So we're seeing these sort of ancillary impact of things that we're doing. Uh, They're changing not only education and hope for people like talk, but policy as well. And Beverly, she just went ahead and put a comment in the live chat, one of many videos, but the last mile in Oklahoma underlining that. So this is a live conversation. I would invite anyone who's listening in to comment. If you have questions, we also have someone from the last mile kind of moderating and answering in real time and how you can help creating more visibility into the problem that we're solving here. So I'd really like to focus a little bit more on the elephant in the room and the hardest problem that we need to solve both from a a social perspective, from a human perspective, from a taxpayer perspective, policy, it's a lot there. But I mean, what is this problem? Jason, I'd like to go back to you. 
what is this problem with the system? What is this problem with Black and Latino men and women and other populations being incarcerated? Well, I think that's a big question. I think one of the problems is the lack of visibility inside, right? I think that's one of the leverages we have been able to have is make our participants more visible by doing interviews or having media come and stuff like that, putting a story to the name and not just a crime to a person, right? That's where it's really easy to start to dehumanize people when all you have to go off of is just a crime or just a narrative that's out there, whether it's Orson is the new black or whatever it is, right? So I think that's one of the big problems is just the lack of visibility. And so much of America don't know who the people are that is incarcerated. All they know is that they did something, they committed a crime or whatever it may be, and they locked away and they know they sum down to whatever charge they have. And I think that's a big problem. If we really want to change the system, then we have to change the way that America view it and give a different perspective. Chris, what are your thoughts? And I, I know that that was a big question for Jason, but it, I just wanted to get some context from him. And I know that your alumni has a, a 0% recidivism rate, which is your potential to reoffend. Can you talk about why that's important to this larger problem that we're, we're giving some visibility into? Yeah, I mean, the most vulnerable time for someone who's coming out is the first 120 days. And it's having a job, having a place to live and a support system. So we've worked really hard at developing that. You know, we started inside as education. Now we have a full-blown reentry effort because you can't stop at the gate. It's just not enough there, we felt. So that support system, now we have many, many, many TLM alumni that have really built their own support system as well, who can empathize with things they've been through. And also, you know, we're, people are walking out with skills. Those who graduate from the program are pretty skilled, right? So we do some continued education. We have an apprentice program within TLM, about half our employees within our organization are graduates. And, you know, there's opportunities for our graduates to get internships. And I think it was a little bit, I don't know, counterintuitive that people could come in and really add value. You think that someone who's formerly incarcerated may have a negative influence on my company culture. And that's just the opposite. People are coming. They're just extraordinarily committed and loyal. You know, we've got people working in places like Slack and Zoom and Square and, and companies like that in the Valley that are working as software engineers. And this is not a gift. They earn these jobs. So, you know, it was really important for us to sort of break that mental ceiling, you know, and there's people in prison live in a box and many think in the box and you have to think literally sort of not be trite, but outside the box and sort of blow away what that perceived ceiling. And we've done that now. We've had many, many people are working as software engineers now just like Jason, you know, Jason never touched a computer before he came in prison. He realized that he had an aptitude for coding. He loved it. He excelled and he completely changed his perspective, his life, his goals. He's, you know, he's married, has a family. I mean, just like done so extraordinarily well coming from, you know, his background, coming from foster care, being a gang when he was 11 years old. And now he's a software engineer and he's leading a team within our company. It's just amazing. And I think this is in the way I met you gentlemen, first of all, and, and got introduced to the program was I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts is the CNBC podcast. And there was a snippet on, I think, great ideas or important ideas for the world or something. And it, it was essentially you and Beverly, Chris, just talking through your program. And I just couldn't believe that this existed. 
Brian Stevenson is one of my favorite civil rights activists, is also a lawyer. You folks may have seen Jamie Foxx star in, in the, the newest movie, I think, uh, about a year or two ago. Yep. Kate Johnson is the president of Microsoft US, and she brought him for an interview at one of our sales conferences. And in that interview, I think it was in 2019, it absolutely completely changed my life. And I think the lives of many, many, many others because of this idea of visibility and transparency and just bringing people closer to this problem. One of the figures that was thrown out, one in every three black males born in 2001, and this is 20-year-old data, one in, out of every three black males born in 2001 will face some type of jail or prison time. That may have declined since the, the African-American population has declined in prison over the last 20 years by about 20%. There's just less violent crimes in the country, but it's still high. It's probably around one in four or so. So when you're giving these folks these skills, these coding skills, these engineering skills, what makes it different? How does it disrupt the lineage of this problem, do you think, Chris? And I'd love to hear from you too, Jason. Well, you know, part of our goal and part of our mission statement is breaking the generational cycle of incarceration in America. So as I said, you know, Jason has a family and part of the goal really is, you know, we're a reactive program because we're dealing with people who have already offended or in prison. But I think it's really important for us to be very proactive. And those graduates of ours, many have families, and we want them to set a good example for, you know, their children in their community. And that's critically important. Just this year, we established a scholarship program within TLM for all of our graduates who have kids who are going to goal is to be in post-secondary education, whether it's college, whether it's boot camp, whether it's trade school, that we want to make sure that that success that our graduates have seen can translate into their communities. So I think it's really important that we do that. And we've seen many, many folks that are going back to their communities. Part of what our, you know, the obligation more or less that people feel when they get out is they have to contribute when they get out. They have to go back and be positive examples to their community. So I think that's really important. And, and again, Jason can speak a little bit about that of what he's done. You know, within two weeks of getting out, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, he set up an after school program at McClimans High School in Oakland to teach coding. And he'd been, free for like two weeks. So that's the kind of effort that we see from those folks who are getting out that want to pay back and pay it forward. Definitely. And the thing about your stat, in 2001, my son was actually born. This is a Black male that was born in 2001, right? And he never experienced incarceration. And I really believe a large part of that reason was because in his high school years, that's actually when I was in the program inside, right? And he was able to see a lot of the positive things I was doing because of media, because I became visible and, and our conversations changed, right? When I called home to my son, my, uh, the conversations changed where before it was about when I'm getting out, if I got in trouble or not, if I'm be able to get visits at this weekend or whatever it may be. And now it's changing to me talking to him about the things that I'm learning, right? And how we were planning when I get out, I want to do this, I want to do that. So the conversations just changed. just in the dynamics of my son and I, when I got out, um, he happened to be at the gate. And still to this day, like just talking to him, him seeing how I operate now is totally different than all the stories that he heard from my past, right? I was going in a big chunk of his life. And this is, again, going back to your statistic of 2001 when he was born. And I think for him to see, even when I was on parole, right? I just got off parole in November. And while I was on parole, I was able to purchase a home. So within less than two years, I went from 
being property of the state to owning property of the state, right? And for him to be able to see that, him know that no matter what, he has a home, no matter what. And that's something that's really big as for me, at least for growing up in foster care and everything and all the different dynamics that I experienced in my life. I didn't, you know, I don't want him to experience it. And now he don't have to experience it. And it's largely due to some of the decisions I've made to educate myself, to invest my time and efforts into things that matter to me. Right. And now him seeing that and him wanting to do more with his life. And then to speak about just uh, the program. Yeah, it was the week. It was the first week or second week. I can't remember when I went to McClimates and they had a, a tech center there and had computers, but no teacher. Right. And I was like, well, what do y'all plan to do? They was like, well, we, we want to eventually um, hopefully teach them coding or whatnot. I was like, well, I know coding. I'll teach them. Right. And so we started doing it every Tuesday and Thursday. Every Tuesday and Thursday, I go there and start started doing the after school program. And literally, all the kids that was in, all the young people that was in the course that I was teaching, they were so far behind in school, and they graduated all on time by the end. And it was a lot of me introducing these coding principles, teaching them how to develop software, but also really diving deeper in these concepts and how to apply them in their life, right? And like all of them end up going to college. And everything else. So it was really transformative to see like within a matter of weeks for me to be able to get out and have that kind of impact in the community. Sounds like it gave you a new model. And Jason, we talked about this idea of this just restructuring your potential and restructuring your vision. And that just comes out so much when listening to you. So Chris Schumacher, we're, we're get, you guys are getting a lot of love. There's a lot of <laughs> hand claps and likes and hearts I'm seeing on the, this LinkedIn screen. So folks can continue to show your support for the conversation and ask any questions that you have for these gentlemen. But Chris Schumacher was part of your an alumni of the program. He says, I can speak firsthand that this program works. It has allowed me to gain employment as a software engineer and pave a road for those following in my footsteps. I'm very proud of my TLM family and our mission. So that's very, very cool. So let's start getting into, so we, we've kind of understood the problem. We understood some of the solutions that you guys have, it, the context, why this is important, some of the lives that you're changing. And I would love to end the call at some point with how folks can help, but just opening up the aperture into what does this learning look like? You know, like what are the dynamics of getting into a prison and, and having some type of software and having folks learning on the software and giving them homework? And what does that whole process look like so folks can understand a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, we can, you want to, about how they learn inside? Yeah, how do they learn? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, shout out to Chris Schumacher, by the way. Kudos to him. He's another one that walked out and he's done a phenomenal job as a software engineer. So kudos to him. You know, we, as Jason said, we started as an entrepreneurship program. And then in 2014, we understood the value of soft skills, but it didn't give you a competitive advantage, certainly coming out of prison. But with the lack of software engineers in the marketplace, we felt like that was an area that if we could do it, and we weren't sure whether people, you know, could do it inside starting from basically zero. And we evolved the program. So we've, you know, it's been six years since we've been doing it. We built basically an offline version of a learning management system. It's all, you know, cloud-based that we're doing. And the folks inside don't have direct connectivity to the local machine, but we have many tools, including GitLab that we use inside. It's basically two six-month cohorts, and they are learning front-end engineering around JavaScript. 
and it's pretty intense. It's tough to get into as well. You know, now there's a huge demand of folks across all of our programs. Now we're in seven states in, I think it's close to 25 classrooms. We have seven facilities here in California. Our big facility that we built in San Quentin, we took over the print factory and we rebuilt it. Now it has five classrooms. It's pretty state-of-the-art now. You walk in, you feel like you're in South Market somewhere in Silicon Valley or in San Francisco. But we teach those skills and it's tough to get into. It's you know, it's an interview process, logic test, essay test, face-to-face interview. You have to be a good citizen. You can't have an infraction for two years prior to applying. If you had an infraction while you're inside, you're asked to leave the program. So, you know, that is really important for us. And it's also one of those things where, for the first time, many people inside are working with other ethnicities and cultures. You know, prisons are very segregated. The yards are very segregated. And it's pretty, you know, it's pretty dramatic in San Quentin. There's a big, huge metal door that you have to go through to get into this area where our classrooms are. And when you walk through that door, you leave all of those prejudices behind you. In our classroom, we have every ethnicity. We have all folks working together that may not have ever interacted, you know, in their facilities or in the yard. And Jason can speak to some of that. But, you know, I think that's really important that it's not only the coding, but it's also learning how to interact and work in teams and be collaborative. And that's a big, big part of it. You've got people that now are super supportive with each other that may have never talked to each other in a normal day inside prison. That's true. I remember the first day in the program, they asked us to pair up with someone that we don't really know and build a website by Friday. Right. And I was like, okay, well, that's already hard building a website with coming from nothing, right? And, and just trying to figure out things. I mean, and mind you, like, I would say probably half the class never touched a computer, didn't like, but still learning how to just turn it on, right? And the biggest challenge for me in that task was actually working with someone that I just wasn't used to working with. And I remember when I, the partner that I chose, it was this white dude, bald head. And I was just like, oh, man, they got me with this racist dude, man. <laughs> I was just like, oh, this is going to be tough, right? And then I get with him. For one, he's not racist, and we're still friends to this day. And he was so smart, and I learned, and I still learn a lot from him, right? And, and he's working in tech also. And I was just like, man, like, that was a big challenge for a lot of us is just breaking down the barriers of politics inside. And once, and once that happened and all those barriers got broken down, it made it so much easier to learn in that environment, right? Because everyone's goal was to learn as much as they can so they can get closer to getting a job in tech. And what are some of the challenges, you know, for some of these folks? And I'm guessing that, Chris, the way that you guys structure your mentoring programs and the type of fellowship and the type of concentration you you give to these, these candidates, these students in the program, probably see to this thing. But just culturally... Are there learning disabilities or are there things that you just have to overcome as part of that process that you can talk to, things that each individual inmate might be challenged with that you just have to give a little more extra care and love to? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, look, when you're inside, especially many folks inside have been inside for a long time, you know, you deal with a lot of obstacles. Obviously, you know, when you're learning to code, that's about it. You know, you hit these brick walls a lot of times. And that's where a lot of the collaboration happened, where these guys are working together. It's like, man, I just can't do this. And then they start working together and figuring it out. And I think that's really helped. 
But again, you like Jason said, many times people in boot camps already you know know how to use a computer, and you know, especially kids growing up, they've had you know they've had phones and they've had these guys inside, especially in San Quentin, guys have been in for potentially decades, never seen a smartphone, never touched a computer. And so you have to understand sort of where the baseline is there. But man, when they hit that stride, like Jason meant Steve Lacerda, Steve was Jason's partner. Boy, Steve was so, you know, he had done a little bit. I think he played video games. That was his extent. But it was really early on when we started teaching React. And he just nailed it. When he got out, he got, I think it was two or three job offers within the first month because he was so well-versed in React. So that's part of it. It's like, there are so many people inside, A, that are very entrepreneurial. You know, they may have just been selling the wrong thing, but people are super smart that just need a little bit of support and direction. And, you know, you can see what happens. Yeah. And if I can add to that, I think representation matters too, right? My team actually calls in on a weekly basis to each class with lesson plans that they designed themselves to teach. And everyone on my team has said one person have been in our program, right? Everyone. So like, these are people that have been in those positions, understand the circumstances, understand what it's like to come back from lockdown and understand what it's like to lose a loved one, either on the outside or inside and have to go to class and still problem solve, right? So a lot of our approach is a human-centered design when we think about education and the different resources and the different access points that we provide for them, where we have help desks, where they can get help. And this is from people that, have been in their shoes. Everyone on help desk that's answering their questions is participants or former graduates of our program, right? We're participants or former graduates of our program. So I think that that means a lot. And when you think about the experience of each one of our learners and the different types of way that they learn, one thing that helps is the fact that our company is built in a really diverse way where it's so many different experiences, business, venture capitalists, corporate world, and then lived experience of incarceration and learning in the program, right? You add that in the pot and you create a, a human-centered design. It makes it a lot easier to, to build these systems of support for each individual. I mean, that Jason, you're talking about human-centered design. You're talking diversity. You're talking about things that are just so important, I think. I work at Microsoft. Microsoft is just a massive believer in a lot of those different concepts. Diversity is, is a competitive advantage. I'm continuously talking about why that is. And you're kind of describing that idea, imagining a student having an issue and going to a help desk, but having someone who can empathize with them that's not going to judge, it speaks their language. There's a lot of warmth in that back and forth. So Carrie Merchinson, a returned citizen advocate the last mile. This is not a unique experience in the program. I work in the reentry department. I hear similar transformative stories all the time. Plenty of returned citizens commenting in about your work. So we've talked a little bit about kind of the challenges at the student level. What are some of the challenges at the company level, the organization level, if, if there are any? Chris, maybe we can start with your perspective. Are you talking with our organization or with companies that want to hire? Companies that want to hire, you know, that just bridging that gap of how do you take someone that doesn't understand what you guys are doing and, and really help them ingest this new way of thinking? Sure. Shout out to T Carrie, by the way. Very successful. She's another one. She's got, I'm going to embarrass her, but she's now a homeowner. She bought it. She purchased a home yeah. this, this past year. So, you know, extraordinarily successful. It's, it's just so cool. So, you know, I think originally when we first started approaching companies. And to be honest with you, 
you know, I had a lot of relationships. I've been in the Valley for a long time. So I reached out to some of my friends who were CEOs and it's like, just give a few of these guys a chance. At the time, it was only men. And, you know, as internships and they weren't even tech jobs at the time. And they hired these folks. And again, like I said before, their work ethic was phenomenal. They're like, man, they come in smiling every day and they, they work. They're just so loyal and, and this is so meaningful. And so that continued to evolve. And then when we got involved in technology, they're like, wow, the work ethic, but their skills are great too. So, you know, I think it's always obviously a challenge when you're dealing with something like this. It's a bit of a, you know, it's bit new for many people dealing with somebody who's formerly incarcerated who comes from a different background than they do but we're seeing less and less resistance now and it's more you know we want to continue to keep that level of accomplishment that we've done over the last 10 years that we've seen and, and that's the goal for us that foundation needs to be really important and more and more companies are coming on board uh, that want to hire and again when we started this 10 even 12 years ago, there wasn't a lot of focus, honestly, in the Valley and in technology about diversity, equity, inclusion. Today, it's important. And so I think it's the timing for us is even better because there is now a real genuine focus on balancing that inequity. And hopefully we can play part of that. And I think it's just going to continue because there is so much positive for hiring folks out of our program and other programs that you know, people really, really work hard to get there. And again, without a program like this, they may not get to the front door. They have to earn their way through and they have to be successful once they get through the front door. But we just want to get them to the front door and get exposure and get some sort of, you know, opportunity to participate. Jason, what do you think about this? You know, you're in this position where you've, your whole life, um, you've not felt that hope. You haven't had that transparency. You haven't been able to see the future, a good future for yourself. And just in talking about you kind of representing some of these folks in in the program, and then you're put in, in this opportunity to work at one of these tech businesses. What are some of the challenges there, if any, that you can think about? I think we do so much learning in our class while we're inside the last mile that when you transfer into a setting and just like any new tech company that you go to, you have to learn their, their stack, you have to learn the language, you have to learn their, their, their systems of how they want to do things. So I think that part is least of the worries of challenges. I think the big challenge is just clear pathways from point A to point B, meaning point A from coming from incarceration to point B, landing a spot, right, at a company. I think for a large part, kind of riffing off of what Chris said about diversity, what my personal opinion is that Cosmetic diversity is like kind of what's talked about a lot, where it's just black and brown. But the experience, the lived experience of not only black and brown people, but also incarcerated people needs to be folded into that. Right. It's really clear to understand diversity. The benefits of diversity is like optimizing your your software, being able to serve different markets and everything else. Well, mass incarceration became a social issue and been one, but but on the forefront now where it's on a national conversation and in order to solve this social issue of mass incarceration, whether you're in the tech space, reentry space, or nonprofit space, you need people with lived experiences, right? You need to understand the problem. You need to be proximate to the problem, like Brian Stevenson says. It just so happens that a lot of our learners that's getting out has the skill set of engineering also on, under their belt. 
So when they transfer to companies, it's not only helping them design, uh, taking a different perspective, but also tapping into that that market that haven't been tapped into, right? I love how you mentioned the lived experience and a guest I had a couple of weeks ago, uh, Joseph Acconi, he was the product manager in charge of the pronunciation feature in LinkedIn. You're able to pronounce your name. It just so happens that folks that have hard to say names feel very insecure or unhappy and frustrated when folks can't get their name right. And one of the things that he mentioned about diversity and building out products and the products of the future, the SaaS models of the future, is this idea of diversity lived experienced. How can you live through different experiences that can help you understand that people need to consume technology in different ways. And I, I think this entire conversation is encapsulates that as a competitive advantage for some of these tech companies. It sounds like you're getting some call out. So Donnie Baran- Baranowski, I need the LinkedIn feature, the pronunciation feature for this thing. Uh, drop Jason Jones LinkedIn so we can connect and empower the last mile. She's a sales operations specialist at State Flower. Daniel Higgs, love, love, love this conversation from Stefan Miles, diversity of ideas is key to growth, diversity of appearance, not so much. So we're getting towards the closing part of the the dialogue. And I want to focus on the future of the last mile. I want to focus on the future of the student populations you're trying to reach, things that your organization needs, wishful thinking, uh, 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 10x thinking. When you think about that future, that vision, Chris, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, it's really continuing to do what we're doing and just scale what we're doing because we know it works. So we want to continue to broaden the you know our platform and where we are. As I mentioned, we're in seven states. Because of COVID, we had to sort of delay some of our expansion. But really, you know, by 2024, we want to be in, in at least 50 classrooms in 14 states. That's kind of the goal. So we have representation in many states because we know, as I mentioned in Oklahoma, we sort of plant the flag in a state and it changes the whole dynamic of how, as I mentioned with Governor Sitt, how that state's looking at incarceration and those issues. So it's really important there. We're also broadening our curriculum. So today we teach front-end engineering. We're launching a UI UX design component. We're launching IT certification. And we're also launching a music and video production program where we're going to be teaching audio technicians and video editors. So it's really important that we have a broader curriculum so that you know people can pursue what may be more realistic for them because not everybody wants to be a, a JavaScript coder or front-end engineer. So that's one of the things that we're expanding. We're also expanding our you know, re-entry component because you know, that's important. We need to have people out talking to more companies, talking to more organizations that can help us with reentry. So that's really important as well. And the third part really is that, you know, we're having impact on policy. Jason said, this is not sort of, you know, this has substance to it. So, you know, when people are successful getting out and you see what the investment is to make that happen, and people are more willing to invest. But also policymakers are more apt to, you know, get behind criminal justice reform because they see there is a success path. You know, Beverly was very involved in the First Step Act that was passed in the previous administration. We've been involved in Prop 36, with a, which was three-strike reform, and several other you know, legislation in California that led to commutations and early release. So we feel like if we continue to show success, that we're going to see success in other places that are going to help relieve some of this 
real issue of mass incarceration. And, you know, we're still the most incarcerated nation in the world, which is ridiculous. So, you know, we want to help lead that initiative across the country where we can really be an example of positive results instead of being an example of negative incarceration, which has been happening for so, so many years. Definitely. And one thing I can add is volunteering. We have a system set up where if you want to volunteer, we have Bank of America that's about to come and do some financial literacy classes. We're working with Google right now for our youth curriculum. They're coming in doing different presentations for our youth. And then we're going to scale that out to our adult classes. Verizon is another one of our partnerships that their volunteers are going to come in. So if you have any technical skill or business skill that you want to volunteer in any kind of capacity, them opportunities is available. And then also post-release mentoring. If you want to mentor someone that when they come home and help them, whether it's technical interview prep, whether it's learning about different avenues in tech, different pathways in tech, other than just software engineer, maybe you want to get into sales, maybe you want to be in design or whatever it is, mentoring post-release is very, very impactful for our learners. I think you guys have been hanging out with each other a whole lot because you have some big vision and some amazing energy about the things that you're trying to do. Jason, you know, structurally, just hearing your story and, and some of the after-school participation when you first returned as a citizen, the things, the stories you've told me about your son, a lot of the videos I'm seeing on YouTube, you're reaching out to the community, you're getting involved. And the fact that you're on this podcast just shows that you're just real so passionate about this. What is your heart seeking from this program, the people around you, the people that are listening to you, the people that you talk to? You know, What direction do you want all of that to go into? What comes to mind when I talk this through? I'm a firm believer that if you lift from the bottom, the rest of society rises. And it just so happened that the people that's placed at the bottom are incarcerated, right? So where I want, want people to take this is to really start humanizing people and put names, faces, stories to the people that's incarcerated so we can change the outlook of what the penal system looked like, what the legal system looked like, right? I think as someone that's been system impacted, not only like in the foster care system, education system, having negative experiences in both, and then ultimately the, the penal system have negative experience there. Now I'm in a position where not only do I have the skill set to redesign systems, to refactor systems, but now I'm given the platform to be able to speak, right? So you're shifting from being system impacted to impacting systems. And that's where I really want everything to start shifting towards. And I think at the last mile, we're taking lead on that. No one else is doing this. Right. Like what we're doing is, is revolutionary. And I love that. It's all about disruption. And the thing about technology that I always say is like, you know, all my life in school, I got punished for being disruptive. Right. And here it is a whole industry that disruption is, is reframed as innovation and it's celebrated. And that's exactly what we're doing. I want to continue to disrupt so that we can make the changes that needs to happen. Amazing. That's what I was looking for, Jason. That was a, <laughs> it's an amazing comment. That's what I was looking for. So we have about eight or so minutes. Of course, we can go a little bit beyond if folks have specific questions, which you can throw into the live chat. But I would love to spend time learning about how more organizations can fund, can volunteer, can get involved, can hire, build pipeline, internships, mentorships, individually. Let's talk about action. Chris, what does that look like? What does the organization need tactically? How do we get engaged, involved? I'm going to do some work at Microsoft and trying to get some more folks engaged. Certainly, we have a, a lot of people who are interested in trying to do more. Can you breathe some life into this conversation around how to help? 
Yeah, I mean, companies like Microsoft, certainly if they're open to hiring, that's number one, right? The volunteering, mentoring, extremely important. But when it comes down to it, if we have a qualified candidate, we'd love for them to be considered to be hired by, you know, tech companies. They don't have to be tech companies. They can be companies that maybe need tech, but aren't focused on tech. So any type of, you know, company that is willing to hire that is really important. And, you know, as we have more and more people getting out, literally we have graduates and people who have been part of the program getting out on a daily or weekly basis for sure. So there's more and more people coming out that are looking for opportunities. Obviously with COVID, the idea of remote employment is obviously more realistic now. So there's possibility that someone getting out in Indiana might work for a company in California or Oklahoma or whatever. So those things are very possible. And again, the people that are in a program are super disciplined. So like, you know, if you're working about remote, you know, and worrying is somebody actually going to work when they're working remotely, I can guarantee you that those folks that come out of last mile are. So I think that as far as funding goes, you know, we, as Jason said, you know, Google.org is a funder, Chan Zuckerberg is a funder, companies like Bank America and Verizon are funders. So they not only participate from the uh, volunteer side, but they're also funders as well. You know, that's always, you know, a problem. You know, it's the first nonprofit that we've ever, you know, run. So, you know, when you're in venture capital, it's very different when you're dealing with growth organizations. Like we're a growth organization, but it's a different dynamic when you're, you know, when you're raising funding around nonprofits. So, you know, it's always something that we are thinking about. Fortunately, we've had a lot of support. And individuals can as well. You can go to thelastmile.org and there's a donate button there that you can donate if you'd like to. That's always greatly appreciated. So there's many ways that people can support. And even, you know, even it's not the last mile. If there's an opportunity to pay it forward, even in your local community, I mean, that's how we started. Beverly and I started helping six guys and it's moved into this national program. So you never know when you're going to sort of hit a sweet spot here and it's, it's really going to resonate. So I encourage people to do that even outside the last mile as well. Jason, thoughts on how folks, because I, I, I think we now know how organizations can help. Any asks, folks listening, things that you think they, they could do? Yeah. I think it's two quick ones. This fairly simple. One, adopt a more humanizing language when talking about this community. Let's refrain from felon, ex-con, inmate, parolee, all these dehumanizing terms and, and attach more humanized because these are also fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, engineers, learners, teachers, all these different terms that just haven't been applied to them. So adopting more humanizing language when referring to the people that's impacted by the social issue, right? The second one is just become part of our community, right? The one thing that I can speak for across the board that every participant, graduate, and alumni loves about the last mile outside of the opportunity and access is the community that we've been able to build. Our community is so strong. The welcoming everyone from all the different states, everything. I mean, we have the morning coffees every Wednesday, Monday and Wednesday that people from around the country join just to check in. I mean, we have our Ask Me Anything session so that reentry is running, doing a great job. And our Slack channel, I mean, just join our community in some kind of capacity. And I guarantee you will figure out what your calling is and where you can have that. Thank you for that, Jason. We have a couple wrap-up call-outs. Zachary Moore has been really amazing. I don't think we've carved some space out for him. Zach, Chris, Carrie, what's up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Beverly says, thank you. 
Thank you, Derek. And she's asking if I'd like to interview some women at the last mile. Absolutely. That would be an amazing opportunity. So last two questions for you gentlemen. And I think we talked about this a little bit, but I always ask my guests this. If you had, Chris, let's start with you. If you had unlimited resources and seven days to deploy them, it doesn't have to be TLM. It could be anything you want. How would you allocate those resources? What kind of cause? Very high level. Seven days. Well, so this is off the cuff, but there are so many states that want the program that are looking for funding. If I had this unlimited resource and I could take that list of companies and I could dial up up and say, you're in, we have resources for you, that we could probably double the size of this, impact more and more people and get more states involved. That might be, you know, again, the demand is there. You've got to sort of hitch demand with resources. If we had the resources, the demand are there, we could open up this thing a lot faster for sure. Jason, you got a couple minutes to think about that. What, <laughs> what are your thoughts? Well, first, I'll build a whole bunch of different educational institutions in different communities, right? I'll, I'll plant them everywhere, De- tech centers where people that have had a disadvantage in their life can have access and opportunity early so they don't end up in prison, right? That's one. And then the, the other half of that, I think I would definitely, like Chris said, advance our program in all the states and, and try to get in every prison. Because I think once we start to scale out more and more and more, just like how we have had success in policy change, that it's going to start changing how people look at incarceration. And so it's going to start changing laws. It's going to start changing policy. And I think that's where a lot of the resources would go of just so that the end result is that more people are getting out, more people are living successful lives, more people are given opportunities. Thank you for that, Jason. So this we're officially going to wrap up the discussion. Gentlemen, this has been such a fantastic discussion. I want to thank all of the folks, the returned citizens, the folks from the Last Mile team who have been listening in real time, the folks from Blacks at Microsoft who have been just amazingly supportive of this conversation. And it doesn't end here. We're going to do a lot more stuff together. So thank you so much for doing what you do and coming on. Thank you so much, Derek. We really appreciate it. Everybody listening, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Derek. All right, folks. Thanks a lot. See ya. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today and having some fun with us on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow me on LinkedIn or at DRUSS Network, D-R-U-S-S Network on Twitter or Instagram. And you can also reach out to me anytime via email at Derek at thedatabinge.com. The Data Binge podcast is a personal thought form where we share knowledge and ideas, views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my employer, Microsoft. I really hope you enjoyed. Thanks a lot.